0: Granger, for the ones who get it done. It was said that he would wander the streets of Boston in the years following the American Revolution, walking aimlessly, muttering to himself, Few paid him mind. Except perhaps to taunt him. He was, at one time, a patriot hero, but he was a bit too early. James Otis walked into a Boston coffeehouse in 1769 only to find the wrong people in there. One was Robinson, a British customs officer that Otis had attacked mercilessly in a Boston newspaper. And several British soldiers armed with swords. Soon as he sees Otis, Robinson leaps at him and with the others assisting, knocks him to the ground and beats him with his cane. He was hit with sword and cane several times and left almost for dead. Only a few who were in the cafe and didn't want a murder to occur separated the officers from Otis. And though later he would get to court and get an award and an apology from Robinson, it's now known the consequences of head trauma, the connection between that and neurological function. The beating would prevent James Otis from participating significantly in the events of 1775 in the war and becoming one of those key patriot names that we hear about. The beating would also have a powerful impact on one person in particular, his sister Mercy. More about that. Otis was a leading voice against the writs of assistance. Now, these are the rules that allowed British custom officers, the British government, to search anyone's house, home, wagon, ship in Boston. Smuggling was rampant. New Englanders felt that the taxes put upon them were large, the restrictions of who they could trade with were all-encompassing, damaging to their income, and lots of smuggling occurred. It couldn't be stopped easily by sea, so the British instituted these writs of assistance. Otis was a leading voice both in the press and in the court that a man's house is his castle, something foundational today in the Fourth Amendment. He led the Committee of Correspondence that defeated the Stamp Act. He was sent to New York as a member of the Stamp Act Congress from Massachusetts. Before the Revolution, the colonies met together to take action against an act of Parliament. His actions drew praise among the citizens of Boston, but sadly he found one room in the town where there were not fans. We often think of the Constitutional Convention as a grand event, wise men meeting in a great hall, But for Delegate Luther Martin, accomplished lawyer and Maryland Attorney General, it was an anti-democratic horror show. Before I arrived, a number of rules had been adopted to regulate the rules of the convention. Seven states might proceed to business. Quorum is what he's talking about. Thus, four states might eventually have agreed upon a matter that would affect the whole union. Four states. By another order, the doors were shut. We were prevented also from corresponding with gentlemen from other states. Members were prevented from taking copies of resolutions out of the room. And here I want to add that I think Luther Martin makes a good point. That's important to know about the Constitutional Convention. The entire convention was conducted in a way that we would probably not tolerate with Congress today. Completely secret. Sentries at the door, doors shut. But also rules that men couldn't talk. In most descriptions of the convention, even my own, we salute the leadership of Washington and the actions that allowed a tumultuous body to proceed. And I think it's also important to see that other side, that the secrecy was probably the only way that such a document was going to get hammered out rather than to have every little matter be debated in public in the streets. But Luther Martin brings up a good point. Here he says, I had no idea that all of the wisdom, integrity, and virtue of this state, his state of Maryland, or others, were centered in the Convention. I would have liked to correspond freely and confidentially with eminent political characters in my state. Suffice it to say that Luther Martin was no constitutional happy camper. He did stay throughout the whole convention, but he didn't put his name on the document. In the speech I just read from, it was the speech that he gave to the Maryland legislature, a report about the convention. He did not endorse it, and indeed discussed the process as an attempt by Virginia and Pennsylvania large states to dominate the new nation by introducing a system where the most populous states would get more representation. He notes how they tried manipulate the whole convention, into just going along with the plan they had crafted ahead of time, the Virginia plan. And that only after objections from him and many others were changes made. Luther Martin says, They argued that no state should influence the government except in proportion to what that state contributes to it. Suppose, for instance, he says, Ten individuals were about to enter a government, nine of whom were equally wise, equally strong, and equally wealthy. But the tenth is ten times as wise, ten times as strong, and ten times as rich as the others. For this reason, it is proposed, that person is to have ten votes for each vote of the others. That will put one person in charge, master of the other nine. Well, there you have it. This was Luther Martin of Maryland's opinion about the whole thing and about the idea of proportional voting. It's vivid. It's not really convincing to me. I don't think it would be convincing to a lot of people, some perhaps, that uh, I think a common view now is that uh, it's a good thing that democracy rules. It's a good thing that people have their votes represented, and it's a bad thing when it doesn't occur. He mixes population and wealth. Though all that shows up in the Constitution is voting by population. In other words, the more people you have in your state, the more house seats you'll get. There isn't really a provision for wealth. Martin goes on and cites history for his side of the argument. In Greek city-states, in the great confederations, each state had an equal voice, regardless of their size. So, too, is the case of the seven provinces of the United Netherlands. United Netherlands, a very important example for the founding of the United States. Or the contents of Switzerland, equal votes, regardless of size. Luther Martin complained of an inequality of suffrage because states were not equal. There's another point he makes about the process around the Constitution. It was his view that the big states said from the beginning that they would never agree to any system that didn't allow proportional voting and that if no Constitution could be struck, there would never be another convention. And what Luther Martin feels since the deal on the Constitutional Convention, because it was roughly, roughly, you know, made up of uh, big states and large states. And within that convention, we should never forget, there was the system that Luther Martin wanted. One state, one vote. Seven states could do quorum, and a majority could carry the matter. It was one state, one vote. So, New Hampshire same vote as Pennsylvania. Giant Virginia, same vote as South Carolina or New Jersey within the convention. But the system they proposed later would be different from that. So if that's the case, how did this deal get passed anyway with proportional voting? Well, here's one of the things he notices. He brings up how Georgia, though a small state, small in population, and currently small in developed size, was large in terms of undeveloped territory. And... Population voting systems would furnish the states with a lot of territory with more votes. But those with fixed borders, say Delaware, would eventually lose more of their clout under a proportional system. So he felt that Georgia, with an eye to the future, was siding with the large states on most of the votes. His fellow constitutional opponent, Robert Yates of New York, did not, like Martin, complete the convention. Yates' father, Abraham, had been a sheriff of Albany County. This put him in constant contact with people in the worst circumstances, imprisoned for debts and evicted from property, the big farms of the Livingstons, the Van Russellers. Father, the sheriff, ran for assembly, and he was called by his opponents a leveler because he wanted all to be equal. Oh, how terrible. <laughs> he eventually took part, as his son Robert would, in the New York Correspondence Committee and was, for a time, mayor of Albany. So Robert Yates, his son, of of him James Madison said, was a highly respectable man, though he was a zealous partisan. Among Yates' contribution is a set of notes to the convention, and this must be remembered. As Luther Martin complained, there were really no notes to the convention. You weren't allowed You know, you could write down your own remembrances, but you weren't allowed to take any paper from the convention. That wasn't allowed. I mean, none of the resolution papers could leave the room. So you have letters among convention members. You have the notes that they took of their memories. James Madison is the most complete, but released after his death and well after events. No one who was also a delegate could challenge Madison's notes. It's known that Madison revised his memories since the time of the convention, and a 2015 book suggests that he edited them heavily and changed them as he changed positions. So as he became less of a Federalist and more of a Republican, he changed some of the notes. And so there's a whole debate and counter-debate as to whether there's really notes of the Constitutional Convention at all. Why is that important? Well, the counters to... Some of the talk about James Madison and his notes will say that if you're trying to say there's no notes to the convention, then there's no basis for textual law relating to the convention because you can't get anything out of those notes if they're not reliable. So this debate goes on and on. But I think it's a key point to say that we don't have a minute-by-minute description. So Yates is one of about seven people uh, who were delegates that wrote various notes, with, again, Madison's being the most largest and important record. You have to triangulate, I believe, and watch the results. Obviously, if what we can't tell from notes about the Constitutional Convention, you can tell from the various votes that were indeed recorded, and also from what ended up in the Constitution. And then there are a few things, like you can see the changes of the Committee of Detail, like those papers are available, James Wilson's papers, and, and all sorts of things like that. Madison, not surprisingly, didn't like Yates' notes. He cast some doubt on them, called them uh, desultory notes. Yet, they do provide some color in what might have been said. James Madison's notes of the convention are boring. Mr. Wilson raised this point. Mr. Butler thought this was unacceptable. You know, maybe a little bit of the argument that uh, someone had, you know, why they thought a president should get eligibility for re-election or not. Yates pours color into what must have been lively debates of real people and people who were of some importance in their states. So Ben Franklin doesn't just make a case for power by proportion. He says, among merchants where a ship has many owners, the distribution is determined to the proportion contributed. Each state should have suffrage in proportion to the sum of which they contribute. James Wilson says of the Articles, pull down the foundation of a rotten house and lay down a new building. Rufus King speaks of the imaginary evil of state governments. Another delegate complains that the gentlemen are substituting declamation for argument. You know, Yates's notes of the convention would certainly make a better movie. (laughs) Um, but he doesn't stay past July. That's the problem. He leaves. He's disappointed. He feels that the Confederation Congress, under the Articles of Confederation, the original document binding the states, had only f- permitted this convention to talk about revising those articles, not to create a whole constitutional government. So he doesn't even want, by his presence, to appear to endorse it. He leaves writes a letter to Governor Clinton of New York, who's also at this time not a fan of this whole convention, and he becomes a leading opponent in New York State. During his time, though, he was among those William Patterson of New Jersey, William Livingston of the same state, uh, Luther Martin of Maryland, a few others, who realized that the Virginians had indeed come to the convention with a plan. And that's commonly referred to now as the Virginia Plan. It Looks a lot like the Constitution, but there's definitely differences. But some of the skeleton is there, you know, president or executive of some kind, voting according to the proportion of population in the state, you know, many other aspects, a court system and other aspects. They realized that it wasn't enough just to argue points and debate in the convention. They needed their own plan. So, they developed the New Jersey Plan, which is a much more state-friendly plan. It's voted down in the convention, and this is when Robert Yates leaves. So we talked about Luther Martin, James Otis, Robert Yates, his father Abraham Yates. These are characters who were not so well-known, but they do add a bit to the perception of the Constitution as this sacred document and the process that built the Constitution as being just a group of wise men debating all the points and creating such a wonderful thing that it's lasted all this time. We mention these people because they're part of a recent book published by Senator Michael Lee of Utah, his book, Written Out of History, where he notes these and other founders who were opposed to a large federal government, opposed to the way the Constitution was written, and he argues They have been written out of history. We don't talk about them anymore because of this. Um, He also notes the Hamilton effect, that the popularity of the musical makes Hamilton appear as the only important founder and ignoring those who disagreed with him. Luther Martin, Yeats are among these revived in his book. As is one, the sister of the broken-down founder James Otis. Mercy Otis Warren, a Massachusetts patriot and friend of John Adams, who wrote articles, broadsides, and even plays to support the revolutionary cause. For the ones who work hard to ensure their crew can always go the extra mile, and the ones who get in early so everyone can go home on time, there's Granger, offering professional grade supplies backed by product experts so you can quickly and easily find what you need. Plus, you can count on access to a committed team ready to go the extra mile for you. Call, clickgranger.com, or just stop by. Granger, for the ones who get it done. I'm Jane Perlez, longtime foreign correspondent and former Beijing bureau chief for the New York Times. I've been a foreign correspondent in lots of places Somalia, Indonesia, Pakistan There's a story that as her husband, James Warren, a very important figure in Massachusetts and a speaker of the Massachusetts Assembly, big revolutionary patriot, penned a letter to John Adams, a delegate to Congress. Mercy was sitting there at the table and suddenly interrupted. So James Warren is forced to write right into the letter he's writing to John Adams. She, Miss Warren, sits at the table with me. We'll have a paragraph of her own. Here, if John Adams expected any niceties from Warren's wife and Otis's sister, who Adams had encouraged to start writing books, plays, speaking her mind to make the case for the revolutionary effort, Adams would be mistaken. She says to you, Congress should no longer piddle at the threshold. It's time to leap into the theater, to unlock the bars, and open every gate that impedes the rise and growth of the American Republic. And then let the giddy potentate, potentate, that's King George, to send forth his puerile proclamations to France, to Spain, and all the commercial world who may be united in building up an empire which he can't prevent. Then there's a little verse from Mercy Otis Warren. For lordly mandates and despotic kings are obsolete like other quantum things. This type of style of writing was not unusual for her. Mercy, as a child, when her two older brothers studied with a private tutor so they might attend Harvard, convinced her father to let her crash the course and listen in. She devoured history, English literature, philosophy of the Enlightenment, everything else she could get her hands on. But it was the inability one of her brothers, James Otis, who we referred to before, to really participate in this revolutionary period that set events in motion and made her feel she needed to step in. Something that initially James Adams and Abigail Adams encouraged. When James Adams came to talk to James Warren and others, Warren's wife, Mercy Otis Warren, joined. And despite her professed admiration for the gentleness charity, and piety that adorned the female of earlier times. She obliged in participating in these discussions. She composed satirical plays, the defeat, the group, the blockheads, in which Governor Thomas Hutchinson, who was obviously the largest supporter of crown policy and would end up taking arms against the colonists, was disguised with the name Rapatio, who was leading the country of Upper Serbia. His hope, she wrote in poetry, was to quench the generous flame, the ardent love of liberty in Serbia's freeborn sons, destroy their boasted rights and mark them slaves, to ride triumphant o'er my native land and to revel on its spoils. And so when average people tradesmen apprentices, mechanics, picked up the Boston Gazette or the Massachusetts spy. They read her writing. They didn't know it was Mercy Warren Otis. She was still unable at this time to publish it under her name as a female writing. And they might not get all the classical allusions she knew about, but they got the gist of what she was saying. Colonial society was in an epic battle between the virtuous, and the wicked. That's right. Mercy Otis Warren was a good and evil type rhetorical person. She attacked with satire. Even in 1775, after publishing her fourth piece, she did ask John Adams whether he thought her satiric propensity should be reined in. He encouraged her to continue. But during the revolution... And historians who have looked at her letters saw that there was a toll that the war took. And already, before there was even a republic, she was seeing that perhaps it wouldn't be a perfect, virtuous one, as with her New England upbringing she expected. She saw that there was wartime profiteering among merchants in Boston. And she groused about how there were people still making nice with those who had been loyalists, going to their parties. This is the the theme of her last play, written 1779 during the Revolution, The Motley Assembly, making fun of everyone picking out clothes to go to a party of loyalists and calling themselves patriots. But... Adams and Mercy Otis Warren depart politically during the debates over the Constitution of the United States. Adams is in Britain. He's he's not present at the convention, but he writes a series of books that the conventioners, many of them are reading. He's trying to lay the framework. He's he's a supporter of the constitutional document that comes out and definitely a supporter of creating a constitution, a, a stronger federal government. Adams had drafted a constitution for the state of Massachusetts. Well, Warren didn't like that constitution. She felt the framework for the nation was against Republican ideals and against what the revolutionary war had been fought for. She writes again, this under a guise as a Colombian patriot. She argues that the constitution had several problems and she details them There is no provision by a Bill of Rights to guard against the dangerous encroachments of power in too many instances to be named. I cannot pass over in silence the insecurity in which we are left with regard to warrants unsupported by evidence. The difficulty, if not impracticability, of exercising the equal and equitable powers of government by a single legislature over an extent of territory that reaches from the Mississippi to the Western Lakes and from them to the Atlantic Ocean is an objection to the adoption of the new system. It's an undisputed fact that not one legislature in the United States had the most distant idea when they first appointed members for a convention, entirely commercial, or when they afterwards authorized to consider some amendments on the Federal Union that they would, without any warrant from their constituents, presume on such a bold and daring a stride as ultimately to destroy the state governments and offer a consolidated system. Irreversible. The first appearance of the article, which declares the ratification of nine states sufficient for the establishment of the new system, wears the face of dissension. It's a subversion of the union of the confederated states and tends to the introduction of anarchy and civil convulsions and may be a means of involving the whole country in blood. She wasn't one to hold back. It may leave us in that situation that in the first moments of slavery in the minds of people agitated by the remembrances of their lost liberties, will be like the sea in a tempest that sweeps down every mound of security. Anti-Federalists in New York, faced with the prospect of James Madison, John Jay, and Alexander Hamilton writing under disguised names in the famous Federalist Papers in New York, needed documents to counter them. So Robert Yates becomes Brutus, George Clinton, the governor of New York, Cato. This Colombian patriot is used by anti-Federalists. They have no idea that that she's a woman. They they distribute 1,700 copies of the Colombian patriot all over the state. She's not successful, and Robert Yates is one of the key leaders of the anti-federalist faction at the New York Ratification Convention. He's not successful. It's close, but there's enough votes to approve the Constitution if some kind of Bill of Rights is added. It's in 1805 when Mercy Otis Warren publishes a three-volume book History of the Rise, Progress, and Termination of the American Revolution, interspersed with biographical, political, and moral observations. It takes her decades to write it. She's always assembling this. What's unique about this book is it has the name Mercy Otis Warren on it. At this point in 1805, she's unabashed about this. Here she says, that she accepts without complaint that men were better suited to repel the bold invader, and beyond that, to describe the blood-stained field with manly eloquence. But that advantage did not extend to moral history. A concern for the welfare of society ought to equally glow in every human heart. Every domestic enjoyment depends on the unimpaired possession of civil and religious liberty. And as a woman, she suffered no disadvantage describing the love of liberty to the rising youth of my country. In 1775, during the Revolutionary Fight, when Adams saw this new talent, John Adams had encouraged Mercy Otis Warren to start writing down notes for a history book of these times. The faithful historian delineates characters truly. Let the censure fall where it will fall. Well, it fell on John Adams. Because as Warren told the story, it was a historical struggle, the revolution, for Republican values, the natural equality of man, their right in adopting their own modes of government, the dignity of the people. But as the revolution had progressed, there was a great betrayal, and John Adams was leading it. After living near the splendor of courts and couriers, Warren wrote, Adams had relinquished the Republican system and forgotten the principles of the American Revolution, which he had advocated for nearly 20 years. He even displayed a partiality for monarchy. Adams is angry. Why am I singled out to be stigmatized, he demanded of Warren after he reads the book. Why had she not given him more credit for his role in the early stages of the revolution? Warren responded, as a historian might, It is not in the design of my historic work to write a panegyric on your life and character though fully sensible of your virtues and services. That is Mercy Otis Warren, someone we should know about. And so it is a favor that I think Senator Lee's book does to bring her out into the public and also talk about Otis Yates and Martin to a more limited extent a little bit. Introduce new people into a group to promote history on television and in the internet and in current circles. That's always important. That's a favor. But I do have some problems in the approach uh, of the idea that these are characters written out of history. Important to know, these characters were not successful per se. Though they represented a, a good chunk of popular opinion in the, the nation at that time, they were unable to stir them to get the result they wanted. Um, Yates left that convention and moved on, and he did try at the ratification convention and was not successful. Um, Luther Martin gave that speech to the Maryland Assembly, but they didn't agree. He ratified the Constitution. The celebration in Baltimore, the neighborhood, Federal Hill, is named so because that's where a giant celebration was held when the new federal government was established. Warren's visions were out of sync with many in Massachusetts who saluted Adams' role in the Revolution, who approved the constitutional document and ratified largely the convention another person that uh, Michael Lee brings up Elbridge Gary limited in who I can talk about in one podcast but I've talked about Gary before he was also opposed he didn't sign the Constitution and gave people in Massachusetts his reason for doing so but many in Massachusetts didn't agree and the governor of the state John Hancock again like so many asking for some changes like the Bill of Rights asked for Decided to support the ratification of the Constitution for Massachusetts. Mason, Aaron Burr, not mentioned as cast, also represented some anti ratification thinking, but they are powerful voices, important to know about, and their role, along with so many others calling for a Bill of Rights, should not be forgotten. And I think in the standard teaching of American history, I think that is a common point made. I don't think you can fall the textbooks too much. It's commonly made that because of the ratification conventions and the opposition to the Constitution, you ended up with a Bill of Rights. At um, that point's not well known. It should be, but I, but I think that it's it's talked about. Yet we have to understand that uh, these individuals—Warren, Gates, Luther Martin—you can add Patrick Henry down in Virginia. These were people who were utterly opposed to the Constitution. And they're not the group that won in the ratification. What happened in ratification was you had your kind of uber-federalists who were like, let's just pass this thing. People like John Jay and Alexander Hamilton and Ben Franklin, I mean, they were were like that as well. I mean, those were the people who, uber-federalists, who just wanted the system passed. It probably wasn't even strong enough of a government for them. What happened with ratification is that a group of moderates in New York, in Massachusetts, in Virginia, worked with the Federalists, and if an agreement was made to get a series of amendments representing some grievances with the document, they'd go for ratification. And in those states, those large states, the Constitution was ratified, merely with a statement of objections. And and I do realize this is only one objection with uh, Senator Lee's thesis. You can't just say that only the people to win should be in history, and I get that. But it's a pretty important thing to note, right? I mean, we should be looking at the people who got their cause advanced. That's one objection. A second objection is that there are a great number of people. Hundreds, really, people that could be called kind of founders who played some role. And many don't get any attention. It's not just on the anti-federalist side. There's not a lot about James Wilson or Pierce Butler or Rufus King discussed in on the History Channel that much or on common discussions even of history, let alone politics on television or even a lot on the Internet. Um, James Wilson was a critical figure. So you could really say about this about anyone. And if Washington, Jefferson, Adams, Madison get a little bit more press, well, they were presidents. They were highly influential people. They were the center of all the networks. Everybody was connected to them in, in some way or another. And if Hamilton, you know, who was not a president, gets a lot of press, it's because, well, he was the nation's first treasury secretary and took significant steps when enacted, created the government that we have today. So, you know, again, I think that that making that case that people are written out of history as if there's like a small group of history people thinking of penning scratching them out in favor of people who are equally important, it's not really the case. Uh, a third point would be that the individuals mentioned in Senator Lee's book, Written Out of History, did not always, you know, His point would be that they were prophetic, that now we have this onerous federal government and they had predicted it. But many of the fears that they predicted have never come to fruition. So we should judge people if they're good prophets, right, by the predictions they make and how many of them come to fruition. But Luther Martin said that the federal government might close ports on its whim, and favor other ports that it wanted. Now, that's something that's never happened. States can have whatever ports open that they want. Unless it's some time of war or something, of disease or something that might be needed to be regulated. He said that a president, if allowed to be reelected, would just keep electing themselves again and again and again. And I have to say, even though it happens with Franklin Roosevelt in 1940, he does go the third term. It didn't happen with the first president, and most presidents followed that example. And in fact, attempts to to do a third term or more were usually criticized by a significant group of people, and it made it very difficult for those like Grant or Theodore Roosevelt. We think Woodrow Wilson to even go for a third term. So that prediction didn't come true. Luther Martin also felt that like a VP could be under the system elected by one large state. And then if something happened to the president, they would have the presidency because of that old system electing the president as the second highest vote getter and figuring that the vote would be split between a lot of people. That never happened during the four elections under that system. So not predictive directly. And then the American people decided using the amendment process in the Constitution to change the way a vice president was elected. So. The system worked, and, and some of these drastic predictions have not come to fruition. Mercy Otis Warren thought that standing armies were the nursery of vice and bane of liberty, and she may have been real right. And again, I think the point that I want to make is that these are important people to talk about because they had important warnings, but I wouldn't necessarily see them as prophets in a way that might discount those who succeeded in the argument. Because while a standing army might be a nursery of vice, yeah, it was used, I believe, appropriately by the United States throughout its history in proportion to the threat that it's faced. You know, and in each war running up to World War II, we're sort of creating an army from scratch where we need it. And for, with each threat we face, you know, start with the War of 1812, right, this is just not going to work because we're in danger. Another point she makes is that states would not be able to implement taxes of their own because the federal government would be taking all the revenue. And I know here some people are going to say, oh, I I pay a lot in taxes. That's absolutely true. But it's not true. A majority of states in the United States have their own income tax and other types of taxes, sales tax in particular, which would have been the type of tax she was thinking of at that time, are used by states to fund governments. And those that don't have uh, income taxes use property and sales tax sometimes very heavily to fund what they need to do. She bemoans the lack of a term limit. And again, you know, an important warning, something I actually might even agree with, and many might, but I'll say that it's an issue that remains controversial. And it's not so clear that everybody on the side of, say, a more libertarian approach or less of a big federal government approach likes term limits. Term limits remain something that people debate back and forth. If they like a person, they want them to run forever. She also said that the ratification procedure, you know, allowing nine states to speak for the rest, would turn the whole country into blood, and it and it did not. What happened is most of the states ratified the constitution north carolina with objections and rhode island eventually though they did not send delegates to the constitutional convention were forced to agree didn't result in civil war they just made a simple determination that hanging out on their own and, you know would not be a, a great thing as they faced the world and their neighbors all part of one union and they wanted to get on board no army forced that and like so many at her time, she made, which we can recognize as a rhetorical, political kind of propaganda point, that the Federalists had in their hearts the view of a monarchy. And for the wide majority of people in the United States, that was not the case, whether they're in New England or in the South, whether they're Federalists or Republicans. No one wanted a monarchy back. There was a disagreement about the scope and size of the presidency, and the scope and size of federal power. And then there are other issues. Not only were they not necessarily profits, but I also think there are issues that members of the GOP perhaps would not like. Or maybe they would. I, You know, they're just issues that I think are a lot more that they advocated for that are a lot more controversial. For instance, Mercy Otis Warren was a big fan of the popular vote. The electoral vote is tantamount to the exclusion of the voice of the people in the choice of the first magistrate. That was one of her objections. Luther Martin is for paper currency for the states, so that each state should be allowed to print paper money, not just the general government. I think it's something of questionable value and might have had a questionable result throughout the history of the republic. But as in so many things... It's good to hear other voices. And so today we have. And you've heard about Yates, Luther Martin, Mercy Otis Warren. We'll have more on the website about all of them. We're going to have a link to one of uh, Mercy Otis Warren's plays, um, The Motley Assembly. Because if there's one thing all of us Americans can still agree with, we can still have a good fun laughing at loyalists. How about that? And if these characters have been indeed written out of history, well, they're not written out of this podcast. I want to thank you for listening. And my website is www.myhistorycanbeatupyourpolitics.com. Think about that premium podcast. It can be as little as $2 a month. If you like this podcast, you'll like more of it. We publish podcasts when we can, but you get more content over there on the premium site. Thanks for listening.